Um, we will start up again uh, the second Sunday of February uh, is when we will start back up uh, after the Super Bowl. And uh, at this point, I believe we are going to walk through the book of Revelation. Uh, I have wanted to do that for a while, and I've always pushed it aside, and then I pull it back out when we're done with one, and then I push it back aside, and I just kind of decided this afternoon I'm going to pull it out, and we're going to stick with it. We're going to walk through it. So um, February, that gives us, starting there, gives us a few more weeks to cover. We always have a few more weeks in the spring than we do in the, in the fall, so uh, we will dive into Revelation and hope none of us drown uh, when we're in there. So uh, we'll, we'll do a head count at the end of each night just to make sure everyone's back on board uh, with that. So let's open with a word of prayer and then we will uh, <clears throat> begin looking at Habakkuk. Father, we uh, are thankful that you are a God, that you are a God of truth, uh, that you are a God of order and not a God of chaos. You are not a God of randomness, but you are a God of purpose and design. And Father, we get to, to peek into your design a little bit tonight. And uh, so Lord, would you open your word to us fresh and new? Uh, Lord, for, for many, this may be the first time they've looked at Habakkuk. Uh, and so Lord, would you, uh, as your word promises, would you make it active, make it alive? that we would walk away uh, renewed, refreshed, uh, that we would walk away different than we walked in uh, because we have grown, because we have come into your presence. And so, Father, may your Holy Spirit come and teach us uh, the word in which he inspired. And uh, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Halibut or I don't know, however you want to pronounce it. Habakkuk is the name. How many of you have done a study of Habakkuk? This is the one that really, wow, two, three, father, son, and neighbor behind him. Um, th this, this really is probably one of the least known, other than everybody's heard the name, but really not really studied of the minor prophets. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why. Um, but uh, Habakkuk, his name... We, we read in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Habakkuk means embrace, is what his name means. And uh, so speaking of Habakkuk, as you read through and you think of embrace, what Habakkuk really has done is em embraced his nation. He, is, he, is really, he, he loves the nation of Judah. He loves the people of God. And and we can see that Habakkuk really has, has embraced the nation. He's given the title prophet, um, but there's no other occupation listed. So we don't really know what his occupation was. He may have been um, in some way or other have worked in the temple. Uh, we see that chapter 3, and we'll talk about it when we get there, is actually a song that he wrote in response to this prophecy, that, this conversation that he had with God. So songwriter, um, you know, we don't really know what, what he did um, outside of, of this prophecy here. Um, nothing is said about where he is from, so we don't know his home. <clears throat> we can assume that uh, it was probably Jerusalem. Uh, many believe that's where he lived. He, again, is, is very familiar with, with the ways of, of the temple and the law. And so uh, he probably resided in or near Jerusalem. If we're going to put a date, uh, we're going to put it somewhere around 612 or 605 B.C. Uh, this is near the end of Judah before they are taken into captivity. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. So this would have been done before the Babylonians came into power because he says, I'm raising them up. They haven't been raised up yet, uh, but he is about to raise them up. And so that places it somewhere around 612. 
uh, is when they would have, would have begun to come into power. Um, chapter 3, verse 16, is another little clue as to time. He said, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So it has not yet happened, but it sounds like it is very, very close. And so that places it at about 605. So somewhere in that vicinity, 612, 605 BC, in those seven or eight years, is probably when he received and gave this prophecy. Um, and we only assume that he wrote it down at the same time, uh, based upon those two verses. So. Um, He actually, he, we can also look at one of the apocryphal books uh, to help determine the date of his writings, or at least to help see if, if we're in the right ballpark. Um, the apocrypha is about 15 books that were written um, at the same period, same time period over the Old Testament. Um, as well as the intertestamental period, those 400 years between the old and the new, um, there were other books written. There are other historical books written. And for whatever reason, um, a whole list of reasons, they were not included in the Bible. They were not included as a part of the original canon. And so we call them apocryphal books. Um, not that they're bad, not that they're horrible, not that we should stay away from them. We just shouldn't base our theology on them. Uh, they're not bad books to read, um, to gain history, uh, to, to kind of gain some insight, gain some cultural things. Um, but for whatever reason, God did not choose to lead those men to include them in this, uh, in what we have as the Bible. Um, but one of the books is called Bell and the Dragon. And the latter part of that book talks about Daniel being in the lion's den and that a prophet named Habakkuk was taking food to some workers in the field when an angel appeared to him and told him to take that food to Babylonia or to Babylon to Daniel uh, in the lion's den. Um, he said, the, the bell and the dragon, the story goes that Habakkuk told the angel that he didn't know how to get to Babylon and didn't know where the lion's den was, so he would not be able to go. At which point the angel picked him up by his hair and flew him to, the, to Babylon and placed him there at the lion's den, and he gave Daniel food, and then the story ended there. It doesn't say what happened next. Um, so you can kind of see the only benefit of that is that it places Habakkuk in this time with Daniel. Um, but an, a couple of problems with that story, Habakkuk, Habakkuk would have known how to get to Babylon. Everyone knew where Babylon was. Um, he would have known how to have, have gotten there. And does anybody know how old Daniel was when he was in the lion's den? Yeah, 70, 89. He was an old man. Because that actually, we always, you know, the pictures, the flanographs when I was growing up had him looking like he was 20. You know, a very young man, robust man, thrown into the lion's den. And he, no, old man, um, 70, 80, 90 years old, that he was thrown in and, and, and placed in the lion's den. And, uh, and so it was actually at the end of the captivity, Habakkuk would have been at the beginning of the captivity um, is when he was prophesying. And, uh, but at, at any rate, it places him in the right, in the right time frame. Um, and so regardless of, uh, of that, this writing puts him in the general time of the fall of Judah. Uh, he was there with Jeremiah. He would have been with Daniel, with Ezekiel, um, Zephaniah. Uh, they all would have been at about this, this same, same time, time frame. Um, so, Habakkuk means embraced. He embraced the people of God. He embraced uh, his nation. And he did not like what he was, was seeing. Uh, it, it caused him pain uh, to see what, what Judah was doing, um, knowing that God was going to uh, 
punish them, uh, the consequences of that sin. Um, and so he embraced them in this. And this is not your typical prophecy. It doesn't read like any of the other prophecies. This is actually a conversation uh, between Habakkuk and God. And what we have is basically the text of the conversation. Um, so rather than, than taking the message of God to the people, Habakkuk, who embraced the people, is taking the message of the people to God. And so we, you understand a prophet is one who speaks to the people on behalf of God, but he can also flip that around and speak to God on behalf of the people. And that's what Habakkuk was doing. Uh, the main theme or point is how uh, we are to relate to God in light of the life we are facing. How are we to relate to God when circumstances don't go our way? Uh, that's really the lesson that we need to learn. That's the theme that, that uh, Habakkuk was, was, uh, was dealing with. Do we allow circumstances to explain God or do we allow God to explain our circumstances? How many times do we define or do people define God based upon what happened? Bad things happen, God's not loving. Good things happen, God's loving. And so we fluctuate. We allow the circumstances to define who God is. Rather than allowing who God is to define or explain our circumstances. Uh, and, and it'll get us in trouble if we work it the other way around, if we try to define God based on our circumstances. Uh, and so we can't focus on our circumstances. We must focus upon God uh, in the midst of those circumstances. The outline of the book is very easy. Uh, Habakkuk asks a question and God answers. Habakkuk asks another question, and God answers. And then Habakkuk gives a response uh, at the very end. And so we want to look at these. We want to look at question, answer, question, answer, and response. So question number one comes to us in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He gets right to it. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? You ever been there? You ever been where you've called for help, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, and you are convinced because of the circumstances, God is not listening. Is that true? No. God is listening. But if we allow the circumstances to define God, we might get our theology wrong. Habakkuk was in there. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? God does not tolerate wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Those are his circumstances. This is the world that Habakkuk or Habakkuk was, is living in. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. And we've talked about all of the injustice that was going on, all the, uh, the wrongdoing of the, the leaders, the government leaders, the, uh, that the law was being bent um, and uh, that there was injustice all over the place. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Uh, that's where he was, li was living, uh, in a world where uh, the righteous uh, were not getting a voice, did not have a voice. Uh, justice was not being uh, dealt in the, in the courts. It was not a just system, uh, but injustice abounded. And so uh, we know that, that Habakkuk spoke during the reign of Jehoiakim. That was the king at the time uh, in Judah. And Jehoiakim was guilty of doing just what Habakkuk was talking about. He was a very unjust king. Uh, he was, was an evil king, uh, did only what served him and his buddies. Uh, and so uh, what 
what Habakkuk was, was complaining about was true. Uh, that is what was going on, all of the injustice. And he basically asks the question, how long will the guilty get away with this? How long will wrong seem right and right seem wrong? We have that in our own society, do we not? Uh, everything kind of, the last election was a big event. Um, and there were a lot of things that were kind of set in place in that. And, and you just look at the laws that are being made. You look at uh, laws that are being done away with, laws that are being overlooked. Uh, and what you see is wrong being made right and right being made wrong. It's the society Habakkuk lived in. Uh, and so very much his words, uh, his question could be a question we are asking. How long? How long is the guilty going to get away with, with this? God's answer comes in, in verses 5 through 11. God was quick to answer. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. That's always God's answer. Sit down and watch what I'm going to do. And just be utterly amazed at how I'm going to work this out, at what, I, what my plan is. It's not like God doesn't have a plan. He has a plan. It's a perfect plan. And sometimes we get all worked up with the circumstances and we pray to God and God's like, it's not time yet. I know you want it right now. Just wait. Wait. Sit back. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And he's about to tell him. And what is that that he's going to do? What's he say in verse 6? I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Okay, not the answer Habakkuk wanted. Not what he wanted. He said, God says, don't worry about it. I am going to act. And what he is going to do uh, is unbelievable. In fact, Habakkuk probably needed it repeated. Just to make sure there wasn't a knot in there. I am not going to raise up the Babylonians. I am going to destroy the Babylonians. I'm going to deal with the Babylonians. No, he is, uh, he is going to raise them up. I'm going to use the Babylonians to destroy the evildoers in Judah of this nation. He says in verse 6, uh, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. Uh, Habakkuk knew that. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. The Babylonians he is going to raise up. Now, God, we have to remember this. God is in charge of the nations. God is in charge of every ruler. Good or bad. Righteous. Now we're good. There we go. God, God is going to do with the nations as he sees fit. Raising one up to devour another, letting one fall. And we, we tend to think that God's only acting when the good one wins. When the Berlin Wall comes down, that was an act of God. 
we have to understand that God is acting through every ruler, through every nation, to, to move us all, to move his church towards his purpose. We don't always understand that. God is sovereign, and we have to accept that. Habakkuk was having a hard time with this cancer. You know, how long will the guilty get away with this? God says, wait and watch what I'm about to do. I'm going to raise up one who is even more guilty by your standards to wipe you out, to wipe this nation out, to, to take this nation into captivity, to judge the evil that is in my people. Habakkuk wasn't sure because this was a surprise. It was unbelievable. Um, and I'm sure it was going to be a surprise to his people. And so he asks another question. He says, O Lord, in verse 12, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Okay, why do you seem, why are you going to use this unrighteous Babylonian empire to judge your people who are in his eyes more righteous than they but when God looked, he just saw unrighteousness. He saw evil within Judah. He saw evil within Babylonia or within Babylon. And so he says, I am going to do this. But, but Habakkuk's question is probably no different than what we have asked uh, at some time or another. How could the super wicked be used to judge the semi-wicked? That's what he's asking. Doesn't that make God appear unrighteous? That you would award or reward the unrighteous Babylonians who are treacherous, who you even, I mean, you describe them as impetuous, ruthless. They sweet, seize dwelling places not their own. Feared, dreaded, they're a law to themselves. Their strength is their God. How can you use them? Habakkuk is, is concerned for the way God is going to look when this happens. Sometimes we don't always take that. That's pretty much the high road. God, he's concerned that God is going to appear unrighteous, that, that, that he's concerned for God's reputation here. Uh, he's not approaching as if, if God is wrong, but he's concerned about the outcome. If you do this, you're going to look like you're rewarding unrighteousness, that you are rewarding the Babylonians. He wants to know what's going on. He wants, he wants more of an explanation. And not out of a lack of trust, not because of a lack of faith, but out of just true bewilderment. This, this is too amazing for me. He even says, oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? He's establishing his faith. You are the everlasting God. You are my God. You are my Holy One. We will not die. I trust you in this. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You have ordained them to punish. I get that. But it's going to look like you are tolerating the treacherous. That you are silent while the wicked swallow up those that are less wicked. He just needs to have it all make sense. On what he knows about God needs to line up with what God is doing. And so he asks this question, how is this possible? Why are you doing this? And God gives him an answer. All of chapter 2 is his answer. Uh, God, God says... Uh, <clears throat> that because of the pure motive that Habakkuk asks, God graciously answers him. Because God is not under obligation to explain himself to anyone. We can ask why, and he might answer. He might let us in on the secret, might let us in on the why, on what he's doing, on the big purpose, the big picture. But he's not obligated to. 
And we sometimes feel like he's obligated to. I'm a believer. You need to tell me what's going on. No, doesn't need to. You're a believer. You need to believe. You're one of the faithful. You need to act out of faith that God is doing what is right. But he doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't have to answer the why. That's probably a question that gets asked of me more than any other question. Why? And that's the one that I always answer. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't make me look real smart, but that's many times that's the best answer. That's the honest answer. We don't know. And God doesn't have to explain it. But Habakkuk learned that even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of what seems like it can't be right, you are everlasting. You are my Lord, my Holy One, my God. And in the midst of this, we will not die. I can trust you in this. And God says, yes, let me explain to you what I'm doing. Uh, because when one does come seeking truth, when we come seeking truth, when we come asking so that we not just know so that we know, but know so that we can act, know that so that we can live right, know so that we can, can, can guide and help others into that truth. Matthew chapter 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So the one coming from pure motive, Seeking truth, God says, we'll find it. Hmm? Doesn't say when. Doesn't have to be right away. It may be after the fact, you look back on it and go, aha, now I know. God gives Habakkuk a two-part answer. He says, let me explain to you what I'm going to do. Part one is in verses four and five of chapter two. He said, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Here he's talking about uh, the Babylonians. Uh, and he, he's actually instructing Habakkuk to write this down, write this, this revelation down, um, because it's going to happen. And he said, here's what it is. I, I am going to move. I am going to act. Uh, in fact, verse 4 has become the foundation for the Christian faith. As familiar as we are with the New Testament and unfamiliar as most people are with the Old Testament, that verse 4 ought to be very familiar. The, the righteous will live by his faith. That's foundational to the gospel. That's foundational uh, that the righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. And so this goes, goes back to the fact that God always has a remnant. You know, we've had so many of the prophets talk about that, that there's going to be a restoration after the judgment because God always has a remnant. And so he's letting Habakkuk know that there is still a remnant, that there is still, that the righteous will live by his faith. That there are still people that are going to follow me. I'm going to see them through this. I'm going to bring them out the other side. That this is going to be a, a remnant that is not stained by unrighteousness, that has lived by faith in the midst of these circumstances, that have upheld the, the, the very nature of God, uh, that has not been corrupted. Uh, and a remnant will survive and come out the other side. He said, so yeah, while it seems like I'm raising up this unrighteous, unholy nation to come in and, and, and destroy, there's a remnant. I will still protect. I will still carry out uh, my goodness uh, on these people uh, that are righteous, and they will live by faith. Um, in fact, they're, they're, they're going to be strengthened by suffering, and by faith they're going to endure. 
That's something we don't, that's not always the answer we want either, is it? You're going to be strengthened by suffering. We talked about suffering a, a while back. Uh, Bill did a, it's a Sunday school class and um, still going on. Um, and, uh, you know, when John Stumbo was here and, and we talked about suffering and that suffering is not something to necessarily be avoided. I, I wouldn't run into it. But when it comes our way, we can learn from it. God is going to use it to strengthen us. And so this remnant, while it's a, what it's about to go through, the faithful will come out the other side stronger through the suffering. And so God's, God's answer here is that God's righteous remnant will be saved. I'm going to bring a remnant through this. I'm going to bring a group of people that still refer to me as Lord and God and live a life of faith, a life of righteousness. And it's, it is faith that God rewards. Our faithfulness in times of struggle will be rewarded. Maybe not right away, but there, there's, there's always an, another side. There's always the end to the struggle. Sometimes that end is what? Death. Sometimes the end to the struggle, the end to the pain, the end to the suffering is death. And what a glorious end that is for the believer. One of the Psalms, and I don't remember where, which one it is, so start with 1-1 one, one and read all the way through them until you get there. It says the Lord, or that God delights in the death of his saints. God delights in the death of his saints. That, that changed the way I did funerals. The, the, the way that I began looking at death of saints, the way that I began looking at death, death is a delightful thing for the believer, not for those of us left behind, but man, it's delightful for the one who's dying because their next breath is in glory, face to face with Jesus. And so sometimes the perfect answer, the perfect reward for suffering for being faithful through suffering is death. What a grand reward to be ushered into the presence of God. And so here he says that the, this, this righteous remnant will be saved and, and there will be a reward and that God is faithful to people who are faithful. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will not live based on circumstance. The righteous will not live uh, based on somebody else's faith. We might grow based on their faith, but we live by our faith. We always say how important it is for kids at some point in their growing up years, in their maturing process, hopefully before they're teenagers, ideally, that the faith of mom and dad becomes their own. That, that they believe when they're little because mom and dad believe, because they go to church and their Sunday school teacher believes or their, their small group leader in, in Wombaland or Upstreet believe. And, and they see that belief and so they believe too. But at some point, that belief, that faith has to be his faith or her faith. And as, as parents or, or grandparents, we need to work at, at moving them to the point of it's their faith. They don't believe anymore because mom and dad believe. They don't believe anymore because the pastor believes or, or the, the youth leader or the small group. They believe because they know. Remember, that's yada. They know God personally for themselves. And so we move them to that direction. And, and God says those faithful people are going to be rewarded. Those who are faithful. Part two of his answer, he says, there's a remnant. I'm going to reward them. Hold on. It's not going to be that bad. Uh, we come out the other side uh, stronger than we went in. He says in, in verse six, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. You see, he, what he is now saying is, I've got a remnant. I have a faithful group that I'm going to see through this captivity, through this exile. 
We're going to bring them out the other side. We're going to reestablish the nation. Okay, other prophets had said that too. That whole restoration is going to occur. So yes, they're going to come in, but look what I'm going to do to them. That the Babylonians will get there. That there is not a righteous remnant in them. They're just all evil. They are simply a tool that God is using to carry out his plan. And then they too will be punished for their sin. See, we gotta, we got to step back so many times and watch. And we have to have our right theology that God is working and that God is good and that God is righteous and that God is faithful. Because if we start to doubt his faithfulness, we will begin to doubt our faith. And we will not live by our faith. We'll live based on circumstances. And we cannot do that. We must live according to truth. Our faith is based on truth, not blind faith, on truth, on reason. And so God describes here five woes that, that he is going to bring upon the Babylonians once he's basically done using them. Once that they have accomplished the purpose that he has for them. And he says, woe to him who piles up stolen goods, verse 6, and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Here he speaks against greed. And we can learn from this. Woe to those who pile up stolen goods, who have acquired wealth in an unjust manner, who have taken what is not theirs, and that's the Babylonians. He says, woe to them. Anyone know what woe means? Woe means woe. It's, it's time to take a step back because this is going to be bad. So woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Verse 7 uh, will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because they have plundered, because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Have we not seen this in our own society? What he's basically saying is if you, if you are living a life of unjust gain, if you're insider trading, if you are extorting from the company, if you're, you're going to be found out. And we see that. How many people are in, in prison because of this very thing? They're going for a while. They seem to be getting away with it. And bad things happen. But eventually, it's going to come in. And the people who are left will plunder you. All that you work for, all that you gained unjustly is going to go to someone else. Then he says in verse 9, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the walls will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. He's speaking here against pride. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've amassed. He says, be careful because it's all going to come crashing in on you. If your faith is in stuff, if your faith is in the, 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 the nest on high, it's going to come crashing in. The righteous will live by his faith, not by his stuff. Sometimes we get that backwards and we put a little too much emphasis on stuff because really that's just what it is it's stuff it's stuff we learned that fact with my daughter's car it's just stuff it wasn't even well-built stuff because running into the back end of a truck at 25 miles an hour totaled the car and didn't put a scratch on the truck it was a Dodge truck. It was a Chevy car. 
I'm not going any further than that. But what did we do? Well, yesterday we went out and bought more stuff. We had to replace the stuff that got ruined with some other stuff. But we don't live by that stuff. The stuff doesn't, can't control us. We can't live for the stuff. The righteous will live by his faith, not his stuff. Be careful of pride. Be careful of greed. The third woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a promise there for us. That when it seems like God is getting pushed out, when it seems like God is getting run over by unrighteousness, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a time coming. There's a time coming when the truth will be put out there. And so this woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed is speaking against cruelty. That we need to treat people right. And we need, to, we need to have a loving attitude towards people. We need to have a servant's heart towards people. And we need to help. Babylonians didn't have that. And it was going to be woe to them because they weren't living by truth. They were not helping people. They were not serving people. So there needs to be a part of us that is service-oriented, not cruelty. Woe to him who's cruel. But reward to those who help, to those who assist to those who, who love. Because there's going to come a time when the truth is laid out, when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And all of those good things are going to come to light. The stuff that right now that is buried, the truth that is buried, the service that is buried, the right things that are buried are going to come to light. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols but cannot speak. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors for the sole purpose of getting them drunk and being able to take advantage of them. Speaks against shameless treatment of others. Of 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 kind of conniving to, to get the advantage, to overcome. It's not treating them truthfully. It's not treating them with respect. It's not treating them with honor. And woe to them, for you will get yours. <laughs> you will be filled with shame instead of glory. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. You're going to get yours. So, so we have to really be careful how we are because if we're going to be people who, who are righteous that live by his faith, that faith de de demands that we treat everyone with respect, that we treat everyone as worthy, that we treat everyone as valuable, as, as have their life has meaning, their life has purpose, no more, no less than mine. That everyone, no one is, more, is greater than me or less than me. Because when it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to, to Christ's death and, and resurrection, everyone is the same needy person in need of the grace. And it's when we live by our faith, we receive that grace. And so no one is better than anyone else. We need to be careful that we, we don't treat people differently. Number five, verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. 
but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So actually, if you go back to 18, is kind of instead of starting with the woe and filling it in, he, he kind of jumped ahead of himself. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies for he who makes it trust in his own creations. He makes idols that cannot speak. And yet here, Habakkuk, I am speaking to you. And so here he's speaking against idolatry that, 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 that is, it's, it's worthless to put any value in what man makes. I mean, to the value of, of a God, that we would worship it, that we would bow to it, that we would give it honor and respect, that we would, would cherish it among all, above all other things. Now, we're to take care of our stuff. We're, we are to keep it nice. Not so that we gain any glory from it, but just that's good stewardship. That it lasts longer. That we get more out of it as a, as a tool, as, as useful. But many take their stuff and they worship it. Not bow down and sing songs to it, but they put it on a pedestal. They care for it higher than they ought. They treat it as if it will save them. They'll treat it as if it will, will make their life meaningful and, and give their life purpose. God says, no, I am that. And the righteous will live by faith. And faith says you have meaning and purpose because of who God is, because of who you are in him. It is through that faith. And so man's response he says, here, look, I'm going to do this unbelievable thing. Habakkuk says, how can you do that? I don't, I don't understand. You're, you're, you're going to ruin your own reputation here. God, uh, explain this to me. And he says, yeah, I am going to do this. But I have a remnant. I have a remnant that I'm going to see through it. And then the Babylonians are going to get theirs. I'm going to announce these five woes upon them. They too will be destroyed. And it happens even before the end of the captivity when the Persians come in. And what do the Persians do? The Medo-Persians at the end of the captivity, they released them. They allowed a remnant to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah coming in and, and uh, uh, after Daniel and, and those prophets. And so how do, how do you respond? And this is really the question we have to ask ourselves tonight. How do you respond when it seems the wicked seem to get away with their evil doing. There's going to be a payday coming. Though he slay me, though I trust him, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's the response that we're to have. That's the response we see throughout Scripture, that when things don't go as planned, or things are, are tough, or struggles come, the faithful live by their faith. The believer lives by his faith, not by the circumstance, not by the struggle. Well, let's look at how Habakkuk responds. It says, this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on... Shigianoth or Shigianoth or however that's pronounced. And that's probably more refers to the tune that this song was to be sung to. Habakkuk in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of judgment coming upon the nation that he loves, the nation that he embraced, the nation that he pleads to God for is about to be destroyed. And he goes into his room, his house, wherever it is, and he writes down a song of praise to God in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain. And this is Habakkuk's response. This is a, a, a psalm of praise and a psalm of trust that whatever is going to happen, Habakkuk is praising and trusting God in the midst of it. It reminds me of Paul. In fact, a lot of this these three chapters remind me of Paul. That Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, 
beaten to within an inch of their life, thrown into prison. What did we find them doing late at night? Rejoicing, singing, having a prayer meeting. In the midst of, of horrible circumstances, yet they are trusting God. And Habakkuk does that. Habakkuk remains, uh, remains faithful to God because what he does in this is he goes back, and this is, the le- this is what we need to do when we are faced with struggle and uncertainty. We need to go back and remember. Remember God's goodness. Remember what God has done. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. Well, we'll start in 2. Lord, I, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's a prayer for the remnant. It's a prayer for keep those strong. Allow them to go through. Allow them to come out the other side because of your mercy. Verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. He remembers, here he remembers the, 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 the people coming through Sinai, coming through the peninsula, being, being saved, having mercy, and the flashes of light and when, when Moses was on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments. He goes back and he says, his glory covered the heavens. And then in, in verse 5, he says, plague went out before him, pestilence followed his steps. Sounds like a bad thing, but what's he referring to in in history? The plagues, the ten plagues. He's going back and he's, when we were in captivity before, when when we were slaves to Pharaoh, you sent those plagues, you sent that pestilence, you, you kept your remnant safe. I trust you'll do it again. Verses, uh, verses eight, 8 and 10. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you raise against the sea when you, when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. What's he referring to? Could be the flood could be kind of two references here, flood being one of them. What else? We're, we're kind of dealing with Moses. Parting of the sea. He, he, he parts the sea. He, you, you uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. You separated the water and and allowed the entire nation to pass through. That remnant that you saved through the plagues, you brought through, uh, through Sinai, through the Red Sea. Verse 11, sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. Do you remember this story? Joshua. Remember the time Joshua was in battle? And, and it was getting late and the, the momentum had changed and Joshua was starting to, to get beat. But then the momentum changed again and, and Joshua was starting to win. But he said, we're going to run out of daylight. God, is there anything you can do? And God made the sun stand still. And he gave him enough daylight to conquer the enemy. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. You gave victory when it wasn't sure. You protected your remnant once again. And so this reminiscing of God's goodness to the, to the nations gives Habakkuk the courage to face what is about to come. And it gives him peace in, in facing that, that uncertain future. And this is a great lesson for us. I don't know if you, I, I'm not a journaler. I don't write things down. I should, because I'm going to tell you, you should. So that means I should, but I'm telling you too, I don't. But you'll be better for it if you do. Do as I say, not as I do. This is something we should all do. Is keep those memory books of the good things, of how God saw us through. A, A book of God's faithfulness. Because Habakkuk did this. There's horrible things are going to happen. 
but I'm going to go back and I'm going to remember how you delivered us out of Egypt. And you'll deliver us again out of Babylon. I remember the plagues, those miracles. I remember how you divided the water. I remember how, how even after all of that and we're going in to conquer this land that is now ours, you stopped the sun. You'll give it back. You will be faithful. You've been faithful all along. You will continue to be faithful to your remnant because the righteous live by his faith. And this is verse 17 and 18. Look at how he ends. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there, there, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And then it says for the director of music, use the guitars. And it says stringed instruments, so wasn't electric guitars, use the acoustic ones. Do you, do you see the, the journey that Habakkuk took through this from, from questioning? How long is this going to go on? How long, God, are you going to allow the unrighteous to prevail? How long to where he gets to, you know what, it doesn't matter. If there are no figs on the tree, if there are no grapes on the vine, if there's no olives uh, in the crop of there, and the fields don't produce food and there's no sheep and there's no cattle, I will still rejoice in you because the righteous live by his faith. When things are as bad as they can possibly get, we should still be able to rejoice. That's faith. That's living by faith. God is sovereign and in control and working out his perfect plan. So the lesson that we, that we need to learn is the importance of faithful conduct. It's the only blank I gave you tonight. One blank, faithful conduct. Chapter 2, verse 4, and we've, I've said it so many times already, the righteous will live by his faith at all times. Judah was to remain faithful throughout the horrible invasion of the Babylonians. That's what Habakkuk was saying. That's the message that when they read this or when they sang this song, I can't help but think that this is probably a song that carried them through. They were a singing nation. I mean, David wrote all the Psalms. Those, those were their big part of their worship. Many couldn't read, but they could memorize the songs. They could sing the scripture. They could sing the truth. And I can't help but think that this is going to carry them. This song of Habakkuk is going to carry them through the horrible times. The church is to, was to remain faithful throughout the horrible Roman government as they began to move out of Jerusalem and establish the church around the world. And I'm reminded too that that the church, as, as Judah was not faithful, that was why the, the Babylonians were raised up. And then we see in the New Testament, or just beyond the New Testament, we can see that you know, the church struggled, the church suffered under Roman authority. We were just talking about this in a small group last night. Uh, you know, why, why, did, why did they have to suffer? We were talking about Nero. And, and the horrible things that he did to the church. You know, he would light his roadways by sticking Christians on poles, pouring tar over them and lighting them on fire while they were still alive. That was the city streetlights were Christians. He, he fed them to lions for sport just to see how long they could last. It was fun and games. They had the big arenas and you've seen, you know, that they would throw the, the lions, uh, throw the Christians into the lions just to, to watch as entertainment. And we said, why would God allow that? But what, could, what did God do with that persecution? Spread the gospel. 
You see, what was the church told to do? What was Jesus' last remarks before he was taken up to heaven? The Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have commanded. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. But where were they? Stuck in Jerusalem. They never left. The church stayed in Jerusalem to the point to where God said, okay, I'm going to have to force you out. If you won't go on your own, I've already told you what you need to do. So I'm going to have to force you out. So I'm going to raise up the Roman Empire. They're going to persecute the church. And the church was then forced to scatter. And so he used the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. And so we have to remain faithful throughout the horrible things. <clears throat> Today, the, the, we have to remember that the church is not American. And I've said throughout this series, we sometimes confuse that. That we think because our nation is seeming to go in the wrong direction, that the church is going in the wrong no, they're not the same thing. We can't equate nationality with spirituality. That we are following God and we're to remain faithful in the midst of this. In uncertain times. I'm not even saying they're horrible. I'm not saying they're going to be horrible. But we know they're not right. And so the church is to remain faithful. And, and here's the call. My wife said this to the women's Sunday school. Was anybody in the women's Sunday school class this morning? Judy's already heard this. The call to the church right now is to be the church. The righteous will live by faith. If we are going into a dark time, you know whose fault that is? The people carrying the light. Because darkness does not overtake light. Light always overtakes darkness. And the only reason something is dark is because the light's not there. And so if we're moving into a dark period in our nation's history, it's because the church has not been living by its faith. God gave us the answer, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear them and I will heal their land. That's our solution. That's our fight. And we need to be a people who are living according to our faith. And that faith requires humility because we, we can't be proud. We treat others with respect. We're, we're not greedy. We're not idolaters. We're not treating people shamelessly. We need to treat people the way our faith demands us to treat them. We love them. We pray for them. Wherever we are, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, the righteous will live by his faith. Galatians chapter 2, for though the law I died, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Righteous will live by faith. Not I, but Christ lives in me, through me. Habakkuk is really a forerunner to the gospel. He's a forerunner to Luther's Reformation. That we live, we are saved, but we are justified by grace and grace alone. Salvation is only by faith, and the righteous will live by their faith. That's our challenge. 
All the minor prophets brought us that basic same challenge. We need to be living it. We need to be light in a dark, dark world. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you and we are humbled. Humbled that you have made us light bearers, that we, that we have that responsibility. And Father, we admit that as your church, we've not always been the brightest lights. That there are times we have hidden the light. There are times that our own sinfulness has put out the light. Father, we repent of sin, of being unfaithful, of not living according to our faith, but living according to our circumstances. So, Father, would you now give us the power that comes from your gospel, the power that comes from salvation, that we might live courageous lives, that we might live faithful lives, that we might shed light and truth. Father, your will be accomplished. And even if there is no food on the table, no heat in the house, no gas in the car, no job to go to Monday morning, yet will we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.